Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Iris and to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. It's Friday, February 24th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's look at today's weather forecast first thing. This from KCRG. The next system is still on track to bring a round of light snow to the area this afternoon and evening. Amounts overall look light and should stay in the trace to one inch range for many of us. The most likely area to experience light snow is I-80 and points to the north especially. The snow should move out by 9 or 10 o'clock p.m. This weekend, it's another good one. This makes three nice weekends in a row here in eastern Iowa, and there's no reason to think this one won't repeat. Plan on highs around 40 tomorrow, as early scattered clouds give way to some sunshine. On Sunday, highs will make a deep run into the 40s, with some 50s also possible on spots. The next system, starting late Sunday night, expect a chance of thunderstorms, which could become widespread going into Monday morning. Any of these storms may be capable of heavy downpours and small hail. At this time, rainfall totals over a half inch appear likely. In addition, if dew points reach 50 plus degrees Monday afternoon, which is possible in spots, we cannot rule out some strong or even severe storms redeveloping during that time. The system is also very wound up, so even in the absence of severe weather, gusts of 50 miles per hour plus seem plausible and will be something to watch as it develops. Looking further out ahead, there is a system showing up in the extended forecast about every other day, which is pretty typical for an active March pattern. Yes, 2023 is flying right along, and March starts Wednesday. The good news is that many days are in the 30s and 40s at this range, with no sign of sub-zero air next week. As for the details on those systems, it's tough to discern anything this far out, aside from the chances of precipitation. We'll take one system at a time and provide updates as we go. Now to the front page on this Friday. We have these stories to read today. Measure to make votes provisional. Recount rules to be standardized in bill. Waterloo House listed as endangered property. And let's begin reading the lead story on the page. Colleges earn Iowa $15 billion. One out of every 10 Iowa jobs is supported by the Regents' campuses, report says. This story comes to us by way of the Cedar Rapids Gazette, and it was written by Vanessa Miller. With lawmakers in the throes of deciding how much money to appropriate to public universities for the upcoming budget year, the Board of Regents this week released a new economic impact report showing its campuses collectively added $14.9 billion to the state's economy in the 2022 budget year. The study found the University of Northern Iowa contributed $1.6 billion in total added income to Iowa's economy during the 2021-2022 fiscal year. Quote, the University of Northern Iowa continues to serve as a vital component in Iowa's economic engine, said UNI President Mark Nook. Quote, in all 99 counties across the state, UNI is helping fill Iowa's workforce needs and so much more. 
the University of Northern Iowa has provided much-needed resources for the state over many generations and will continue evolving to help meet the needs of Iowa for generations to come. Quote, anyone who's investing in you and I, whether that be our students, taxpayers, or our generous donors, can be confident in seeing a return that benefits the whole state, unquote. The combined impact from University of Iowa, Iowa State University, and the University of Northern Iowa operations, construction, health care, economic development, research activities, visitor and student spending, volunteerism, and alumni support is equal to about 7% of the state's gross state product, the report said. Quote, educational institutions are like beekeepers, according to the report. While their principal aim is to provide education and raise people's earnings, in the process, they create an array of external benefits. Students' health and lifestyles are improved, and society indirectly benefits just as orchard owners indirectly benefit from beekeepers. The study, conducted by Lightcast, a labor market analytics firm, that did the region's first economic impact study in 2018, found the university's total economic impact equal to supporting 198,837 jobs. Quote, for perspective, this means that one out of every 10 jobs in Iowa is supported by the activities of the universities and their students. According to the study, which doesn't take into account the campus's extension and outreach activities. Last week, Iowa's public university presidents sat before the Iowa House Education Appropriations Subcommittee in defense of their request for $34.7 million more in education appropriations for the upcoming 2024 budget year, marking the region's largest funding increase ask in nearly a decade. Lawmakers haven't granted the board's full appropriations request in years, and even cut appropriations in 2020. Should they appropriate the full amount this year, total educational appropriations for the regions would rise from $575.9 million to $610.5 million. That, according to the Economic Impact Study, would be money well spent. Quote, for every dollar spent educating students attending the universities, taxpayers will receive an average of $2.70 in return over the course of the students' working lives, according to the study. The analysis found UNI contributes to Iowa's economy in the following ways. One out of every 78 jobs in Iowa is supported by the activities of UNI and its students. Visitors' spending accounts for $50.8 million in added income, and UNI student and employee volunteer hours are valued at $13 million. The report also highlights the value of earning a college degree. The average bachelor's degree graduate will see an increase in earnings of $22,700 each year compared to someone with a high school diploma working in Iowa. The last economic impact report the board commissioned in 2018, budget year, found its institution had an $11.8 billion boon for the state. The board paid Lightcast $132,000 for its work on the new report, 
and $118,000 for its 2018 report. Beyond straight economics, according to both studies, Iowa's public universities benefit students, taxpayers, and society at large for their investment into tuition, books, supplies, and loans. Students yield a return of $5.40 in higher future earnings for every dollar they spent at the Iowa universities, correlating to an annual rate of return of 16%, according to the new report. Put another way, over a working lifetime, benefits of a bachelor's degree will amount to $1 million in higher earnings than a high school diploma or equivalent. Quote, Iowa will also benefit from an estimated $814.4 million in present value social savings related to reduced crime, lower welfare and unemployment, and increased health and well-being across the state, according to the study, breaking down social savings into three categories, health, crime, and income assistance. The analysis tallied avoided costs that otherwise would have been drawn from private and public resources, absent the education provided by the universities. Under health-related savings, the report estimated educated Iowans saved the state $671.6 million due to a reduced demand for medical treatment and social services, improved worker productivity, and reduced absenteeism, and a number of vehicle crashes and fires reduced by alcohol or smoking-related incidents, unquote. It estimated $133.9 million in crime savings, including savings associated with fewer crime victims, added worker productivity, and reduced expenditures for police and law enforcement, courts, and administration of justice and corrective services, unquote. Regarding income assistance, the report found $8.9 million in savings stemming from a reduced number of persons in need of welfare or unemployment benefits. Our next story is titled, Abandoned Waterloo House, named as one of the most endangered properties in Iowa. Story filed by Maria Cooper, Dateline Waterloo. Hidden behind a large tree on Lafayette Street sits a worn-down house. The once-inhabited structure at 207 Lafayette Street is now listed as one of the state's most endangered properties, according to Preservation Iowa. The organization recognizes historic buildings and advocates for their preservation. The house is nominated by the Waterloo Historic Preservation Committee, which works to recognize, promote, and preserve historic sites and cultural heritage in the city. Built in 1913, the four-bedroom and one-bathroom is described as an American four-square. The hallmarks of this type of house are its box shape, wide porch, and large windows. They were most popular from 1895 to 1930. Ed Otteson, a project architect with Kirk Gross Company and a member on the commission, said the house utilizes colonial revival features, and the combination of that and the four-square makes it kind of unique, he said. Ortison also said there have been few changes to the exterior of the house. However, the house has been abandoned for five years and could be demolished soon, unless someone saves the property. 
the house was brought to the Historic Preservation Commission by the city to approve it for demolition. The commission then asked the city to try and find an organization or person to rehabilitate it. Quote, we're hoping we can find somebody, Audison said, but if we don't find anybody, then the city doesn't want to keep it. Lee Ann Randick of Preservation, Iowa, sees some hope for the property, though. Quote, it's in a pretty sad condition, she said, but the reviewers really thought there was some potential if someone were interested, unquote. The porch roof is falling apart, and the windows are boarded up. On the inside, Audison said the stair to the upper level has collapsed, but he remains hopeful. Quote, it is in need of a lot of work, and it's almost to the point where it can't be, he said. But we've seen projects as bad as this rehabbed before, unquote. He said if no one comes forward to save it, the property will come up in a month or two to approve the demolition request by the city. Then, asbestos would have to be removed. After that, the house could come down in a couple of months. Audison hopes that being listed as endangered will bring awareness to the property. Randick said, after being named as endangered, many properties have been saved. Five other properties have been named to the 2023 Most Endangered Property list, and they include the following. The William Fletcher King Memorial Chapel in Mount Vernon, Wilson Middle School in Cedar Rapids, the Iowa Canning Company Seed House in Vinton, the Hasty Farmhouse in Carlisle, and the George House in North Liberty. Many other Waterloo properties have been listed as endangered in the past by Preservation Iowa. These include the Rath Administration Building, the former Courier Building on Commercial Street, the Central Battery Building, St. Mary's School, and Mount Moriah Missionary Baptist Church. The program also gives out Preservation at its Best awards. Some area buildings have been given the award and include the former Wonder Bread Building, now housing Single Speed Brewing Company, and the old Cedar Falls Post Office, which is now Bike Tech. Next, Aaron Murphy of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau gives us this story. Measure to make votes provisional. Iowans who register on Election Day would need a second verification. Dateline Des Moines. Any vote cast by an Iowan who registers on Election Day would be automatically considered provisional until officials could verify the voters' information a second time under legislation advanced Thursday by Republican state lawmakers. The provision is one of three elections laws changes proposed by Iowa Senator Sandy Salmon, a Republican from Janesville, and advanced by Salmon and fellow Republican Senator Jason Schultz of Schleswig. Under the other proposals, all ballots would be recorded, preserved, and considered public information, including which candidates were selected. But without any of the voters' identification information, and Iowans could challenge voter registration information across county lines. Salmon and Schultz advanced the bills after hearing public testimony from Iowans who said that the proposals are needed to ensure that government list of Iowa voters is accurate and current, and to prevent election fraud. Michael Beyer from Waterloo testified on all three bills via video conferencing. He said activists like him are trying to ensure Iowa's voting registration information is accurate. Quote, 
every ineligible voter on the voter rolls is an opportunity for bad actors to request an absentee ballot in that voter's name, Bayer said, although the state has other extensive steps in place to prevent mail-in voter fraud. By state law, including some that have been passed by Republicans in recent years, any Iowan who votes by mail must be registered to vote and must provide his or her date of birth, residential address, a driver's license number, or government-approved voter identification number, and a signature. Quote, if for some odd reason, if they could decide to take one of those names and request an absentee ballot, we go through and we check and we verify identification to make sure and certify that the person requesting is the person that is registered to vote, unquote. That was Jamie Cashman, a lobbyist for the Iowa State Association of County Auditors, the organization that represents the county officials who administer Iowa's elections. Cashman said the proposal to allow Iowans to file voter registration challenges across county lines could place unnecessary workload burdens on those county elections officials. Under current law, Iowans can challenge the voter registration of a registered voter who resides in the same county. Some activist groups have recently filed a massive challenges to voter registration information, including in Iowa. Hundreds of Iowa voters' registrations were challenged in Lynn and Blackhawk counties last fall, roughly two months before the November election. The number of registration challenges in those counties were extraordinarily higher than usual, county elections officials said. In Blackhawk County, all but two of the 570 challenged registrations were to voters whose status was inactive, meaning they had not voted in the 2020 election, officials there said. In Lynn County, officials said it appears a majority of the challenged registrations belong to voters who moved out of state. State law requires the opportunity for a 10-minute hearing for any Iowa voters whose registration has been challenged. Quote, that's our fundamental concern, is being able to let people go from county to county, making hundreds of requests that really put an unneeded burden on county auditors and their staff, Cashman said. The Iowa House Elections Law legislation proposed by Representative Bobby Kaufman, a Republican from Wilton, includes a provision that would require a bond payment on any voter registration challenge. Kaufman said the provision was requested by auditors. Quote, I'm trying to thread the line between making sure that people have the ability to object and challenge, while also ensuring that auditors are able to do their job free of very large financial obligations stemming from challenges, Kaufman said. Kaufman's proposal, House File 356, passed the House's State Government Committee Thursday and is now eligible for debate by the full Iowa House. On Election Day registration in Salmon's bill, Cashman said a second verification is not needed because the initial voter registration is designed to confirm the voter's identity. Salmon's proposal, Senate Files 341, 342, and 351, are now eligible for consideration by the full Senate Committee on State Government. Iowa Secretary of State Paul Pate 
was not available late Thursday for a reaction. Now here's a second story about the state legislature. Recount rules to be standardized in bill. Local elections officials largely express support. This filed by Aaron Murphy of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau. Dateline Des Moines. Election recount procedures in Iowa would be clarified and standardized under election law changes advanced by state lawmakers on Wednesday. Inconsistencies in Iowa's election recount procedures have been laid bare as multiple elections have gone to recounts over the past two election cycles. Representative Bobby Kaufman, Republican from Wilton, who introduced the proposed legislation, said it is designed to create procedures that will generate consistency in future recounts. The proposal generally is supported by county elections officials who conduct Iowa's elections, according to those who spoke at the legislative hearing on the proposal Wednesday at the Iowa Capitol. Quote, you had different recount options all across the state, depending on where you were and what they decided, Kaufman said. And the one thing I heard from Democrats, Republicans, auditors, people that sit on recount boards, is we need uniformity. We need predictability. We need to know exactly what we're all getting into. No ambiguity, no gray area. That was my motivation, was to create uniform set of rules that everybody knows what the game is. Everybody knows how to play it. Everybody knows what the rules are. Under the proposal, the deadline to request a recount would be moved from the third day following the canvas of election results to two days after the canvas, and a recount board must convene within six days of the canvas. And also, recounts must be completed within 17 days of the canvas for a presidential election, within 21 days of the election for Congress or state office, and within 13 days of any other election. Also, a recount request must include all precincts in a county. The request must state whether a machine recount is requested or a machine and hand count, and any request for a hand recount must include all counties in the district. And more populous counties would be given the ability to add more workers to a recount board, which oversees the process. Under current law, each county, regardless of its size, can have only three recount board members. Quote, just want to make sure that whatever we do going forward on recount procedure is reliable and done in a timely manner and very predictable, said Representative David Young, a Republican from Van Meter, who is on the three-member legislative panel that considered the proposal Wednesday. That panel also included Kaufman and Representative Amy Nielsen, a Democrat from North Liberty a representative of the state association that represents Iowa's county auditors, the local officials who administer Iowa's elections, gave a mostly positive review of the proposal. Jamie Cashman, a lobbyist for the Iowa State Association of County Auditors, said the legislation includes many recommendations made by county auditors who had formed working groups to propose changes to Iowa's recount laws. Quote, This legislation represents a lot of conversations we've had over the years, specifically 
a lot of good things you're putting in here in regard to recounts, Cashman said. Cerro Gordo County Auditor Adam Wedmore also complimented the proposal. Quote, there are some positive things that we've been talking about for several years, some improvements to our election process that will make it more streamlined from county to county when it comes to recount process, Wedmore said at the hearing. Quote, the proposal will also ensure that we have enough members on a recount board in a timely manner to actually complete recounts, unquote. The panel advanced the proposal, House File 356, making it eligible for consideration by the full House Committee on State Government. Of the election recounts conducted in Iowa over the past two cycles, the most visible involved U.S. Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks's 2020 victory by just six votes. That income was recounted in all 24 counties in the Congressional District. Next, we have a story that comes from the Associated Press. Healthcare vaccine mandate remains as some push for an end. Dateline, Lowry City, Missouri. At Truman Lake Manor in rural Missouri, every day begins the same way for every employee entering the nursing home's doors. With a swab up the nose, a swirl of testing solution, and a brief wait to see whether a thin red line appears indicating a positive COVID-19 case. Only the healthy are allowed in to care for the virus-free residents. Despite those precautions, a coronavirus outbreak swept through the facility late last year, and inspectors subsequently cited it for violating the federal government's COVID-19 vaccination requirement for health care facilities. Truman Lake Manor is one of about 750 nursing homes and 110 hospitals nationwide written up for violating federal staff vaccination rules during the past year, according to an Associated Press analysis of data from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Most were given a bureaucratic nudge to do better, though some nursing homes also received fines, especially when they had multiple other problems. One year after it began being enforced nationwide on February 20, 2022, the vaccination requirement affecting an estimated 10 million health care workers is the last remaining major mandate from President Joe Biden's sweeping attempt to boost national vaccination rates. Similar requirements for large employers, military members, and federal contractors have all been struck down, repealed, or partially blocked. The health care vaccination mandate is scheduled to run until November 2024, but some contend it's time to stop now, citing fewer severe COVID-19 cases, health care staffing shortages, and the impending May 11th expiration of a national public health emergency that has been in place since January 2020. Quote, the regulations are making it harder to give care, not easier, said Tim Corbin, the administrator of Truman Lake Manor, who also doubles as a nurse, adding that the mandates need to end, unquote. CMS said in a statement to the AP that the requirement for staff to be fully vaccinated has been a critical step in responding to the pandemic and has saved Americans 
from countless infections, hospitalizations, and death. The policy requires workers, contractors, and volunteers at facilities receiving Medicare or Medicaid payments to have the full primary dosage of an original COVID-19 vaccine, with exceptions for medical or religious reasons. And now, a second story from the Associated Press, titled, Trump Investigation, Grand Jurors' Words Shouldn't Tank Charges, Dateline Atlanta. Almost as soon as the foreperson of the special grand jury in the Georgia election meddling investigation went public this week, speculation began about whether her unusually candid revelations could jeopardize possible prosecution of former President Donald Trump or others. Emily Kors first spoke out in an interview published Tuesday by the Associated Press, a story that was followed by interviews in other print and television news outlets. In detailed commentary, she described some of what happened behind the closed doors of the jury room, how witnesses behaved, how prosecutors interacted with them, how some invoked their constitutional right not to answer certain questions. Lawyers for Trump say the revelations offered by Coors shattered the credibility of the entire special grand jury investigation. People hoping to see the former president indicted worried on several media that Coors may have tanked a case against the former president. But experts said that while Coors's chattiness in news interviews probably aggravated Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis, who's leading the investigation, they were not legally damaging. Willis likely, quote, wishes that this woman hadn't gone on the worldwide tour that she did, said Amy Lee Copeland, a former federal prosecutor and criminal defense attorney in Georgia who's not involved in the case. And now, listeners, we just want to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, February 24th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, let's turn to today's obituaries. Evansdale, James Demetrius Philolove Jr. was born July 24, 1967, in Waterloo, Iowa, to his parents James D. Sr. and Patricia Ann Moore Philolove. For a short time, James and his family lived in Memphis, Tennessee, later relocating back to Waterloo. He attended school in Waterloo, graduating from Central High School in 1985. After high school, James enlisted in the United States Army, where he served as a combat engineer. He was honorably discharged in 1992. In his later years, he went back to school to pursue his Bachelor of Science in Information Technology, in which he was extremely proud. In February of 1990, James was united in marriage to Shanita C. Sarver, and to this union, their daughter, Jamisha Nishal Fullalove, was born. The couple later divorced. In August of 2003, James married Teresa Gray. In his early working years, James worked at Eagle Ottawa Tannery Company for 15 years, and most recently at John Deere, 
where he was currently employed. When James wasn't busy working, he enjoyed fishing, riding motorcycles, and was an avid sports fan, which included his beloved Dallas Cowboys, and he loved dogs, especially his own. Walking them and training them was something he really enjoyed doing. He was funny, loving, extremely loyal, and was a very passionate person. James was strong in his convictions. When it came to his family and friends, this is where his passion really radiated. He would do almost anything for them, although James's passing leaves a huge hole in the hearts of those he leaves behind. Their stories of him and love for him will keep his memory and legacy alive. A visitation for James will be held on Monday, February 27th, from 10 o'clock a.m. until the time of the funeral service at 12 o'clock p.m. at Locke Funeral Home at Tower Park, 4140 Kimball Avenue, Waterloo, Iowa. Burial will follow services at the Garden of Memories Cemetery in Waterloo, with full military honors being performed. Memorials may be made in James's name to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, 501 St. Jude Place, Memphis, Tennessee, 38105, or to the Cedar Bend Humane Society, 1166 West Airline Highway, Waterloo, Iowa, 50703. Messages of condolence or memories of James can be left for the family at www. LockFuneralServices.com. Next, in Gladbrook, Joanne M. Moss, 91 of Gladbrook, Iowa, passed away Wednesday, February 15th, at Bickford of Cedar Falls Senior Living. Funeral services for Joanne will be at 11 o'clock a.m. Monday, February 27th, at the Peace United Church of Christ in Gladbrook, Iowa. Visitation will be from 9.30 a.m., until the time of services at the church. Interment will be at Maple Hill Cemetery in Gladbrook, Iowa. Arrangements have been entrusted to the Anderson Funeral Home of Gladbrook, Iowa. Online condolences may be sent to www.andersonfhs.com. Joanne was born on May 20, 1931, to Louis and Catherine Ladehoff Staker. She graduated from Gladbrook Community School in Gladbrook, Iowa. On May 25, 1953, Joanne was united in marriage to Irwin Mass in Spring Valley, Minnesota. Together, they had four children, Patricia, Vicki, James, and Christy. They made their home in Gladbrook while Joanne worked several jobs in the community before becoming an administrative assistant with Gladbrook Community School. For 28 years before retiring, Joanne was a member of Peace United Church of Christ. In Joanne's free time, she enjoyed attending her grandchildren's events, gardening, canning, baking, and making her homemade caramels. And now we have the death notices filed by the courier. Orla M. Malley, 90, of Maple Grove, Minnesota, died Monday, February 20th at her home. Arrangements are with Lock Funeral Services at Tower Park. Jack M. Mahler, 85, died Wednesday, February 22nd. Arrangements for Jack are with Haggerty Wychuff Grarup Funeral Service on West Ridgeway. William, known as Bill Neidert, 53, of Waterloo, 
died Tuesday, February 21st, at home. Arrangements are with Parrot and Wood Chapel of Memories. And Catherine, known as Kathy Sue Zuck, 68, of Fairfield, formerly of LaPorte City, died Tuesday, February 21st, at University of Iowa Hospital. Arrangements for Kathy are with the Boehner Funeral Home and Crematory. And now, let's turn to the opinion section. Our first editorial appeared in the New York Times, written by Catherine Miller, titled, Joe Biden's Greatest Strength is Also His Greatest Vulnerability. In February 2020, just before the world shut down, I was waiting for Joe Biden to speak on a Friday night in Henderson, Nevada. The next morning, I watched Bernie Sanders rally a fairly young, largely Latino crowd in a packed Las Vegas high school cafeteria. The Biden event, held when it looked as if he would not win the nomination, was smaller and more subdued. On the other side of a rope separating media from attendees, a group of Biden supporters were talking about how stressful it would be to be president at their and Mr. Biden's age. As I remember it, one of them said, but he feels he has to do it, unquote. Not much has changed about the substance of their conversation since then, other than three long years. Mr. Biden, at 80, is the oldest U.S. president ever. If and when he announces a re-election campaign, he will put into play the idea of an even older president, eventually 86 years old. Quote, is age a positive thing for him? No, Nancy Pelosi recently told Maureen Dowd, before adding that age is a relative thing. For reasons ultimately only Biden can know, it seems he feels he has to do it. There's a straightforward dimension to the problem. The effects of age can get beyond your control, and it'd be a safer bet to leave office before the risk, probability, elevates to a danger zone. Barney Frank decided well in advance that he would retire from Congress at 75, then did so in his early 70s. You could feel that would be the right choice for Mr. Biden or any other leader over a certain age threshold and be done with this topic. But age and health, not together, different contradictions in America. Everything's so weird now. Tech types, athletes, and people of means are spending millions to keep their bodies youthful and to defeat decline, if not death. We live in this society where people frequently talk about the resentment of older leadership, and elect and re-elect older leaders. Donald Trump would also, were he to win and serve out a second term, turn 82. And you could view the final days of the first Trump White House through this prism. Nearly a quarter of the Congress was over 70 last year. Insider found up to 8% in 2002. Senator Charles Grassley, a Republican and Iowa senior senator, won re-election at age 89 last fall. Two of the most powerful and defining congressional leaders of most of our lives, Mitch McConnell and Ms. Pelosi, are in their 80s. And until the recent hockey line change in House leadership, much of the Democratic congressional leadership was over 70. The Treasury Secretary is 76. Two Supreme Court justices are in their 70s. In the last decade, death changed the ideological balance of the court. 
if he runs for his second term. Squarely in the space of all these contradictions, Mr. Biden is making the same ask as he did during the 2020 election, to trust him, to trust that he will be proven right about himself. Qualitatively, Mr. Biden represents familiarity and stability, which both derive from his age and sit in uneasy tension with it. Mr. Biden premised his 2020 campaign on his singular ability to win the presidency when a good number of people in politics and media didn't think he could win even the nomination. He predicted a level of congressional function that many people found nostalgic to the point of exotic. This skepticism was, on a deep level, about his age and whether his time had passed and whether he was too distant from the political realities of the 2020s. The thing is, Mr. Biden was right before. He did win the nomination. He did win against Donald Trump. The first two years of the Biden presidency did involve a productive and occasionally bipartisan U.S. Congress. On some level, people like me were wrong. This whole presidency originated with Mr. Biden being right about himself and therefore his age. And maybe he will be right again. That's a real possibility, under discussed in these conversations. Age is relative. As Ms. Pelosi said, medical science keeps improving and people keep living longer, healthier lives. Presidents can focus on the big picture and delegate the rest. Mr. Biden's own parents live to 86 and 92. Having purpose, professional or otherwise, can rejuvenate all of our lives. He looked pretty lively during the State of the Union earlier this month, and certainly in Ukraine and Poland. A generation of old men, from Clement Attlee to Conrad Adenauer, rebuilt Europe after the catastrophic 1930s and 1940s, back when people lived much shorter lives. Mr. Adenauer, the first leader of West Germany, actually served until age 87. We haven't lived through anything like World War II, but as we convulse through the two decades of staggering technological change, that might explain the resurgence of some older and familiar leaders over the last decade. Maybe rather than resenting this generational hold on power that Mr. Biden represents, some segment of people is relieved by the continuity that he offers and by his distance from our daily lives. It's complicated to leave office when you have real power. If you were Mr. Sanders at 81 or Mitt Romney at 75, why would you walk away? Mr. Sanders and Mr. Romney retain their essential selves as public figures. They don't seem especially changed by age. Neither has said whether he's going to run again. But if they still feel vital and able, and they are in a position of actual agency and responsibility, then it's hard to see why they should leave public life. The risk, though, registers at a different pitch with the presidency. Even if you're not expecting the president to catch a bullet in his teeth or something, we have 100 senators and one president, hundreds of federal judges, and nine Supreme Court justices. Some stuff matters more than others. This is a problem even at the very beginning of the country's history. During the Constitutional Convention, a proposal arose about how to proceed if the president were unable to serve. According to James Madison's notes, the delegate John Dickinson asked, quote, 
What is the extent of the term disability, and who is to be the judge of it? Unquote. Nobody's ever precisely resolved this dilemma. Even with the 25th Amendment, Mr. Biden could be wrong. He could lose the election because of the way voters perceive his age, or he could make it to a second term only to suffer a serious illness in office. Would the country default to a discomfort with visible age and slant one way on Mr. Biden, or take a more nuanced view in the fall? While thinking over some of these concerns, I saw Senator John Fetterman speak to a large Saturday afternoon crowd in an indoor sports complex in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Mr. Fetterman isn't old. He's 53. But he did suffer a stroke and began recovery while campaigning for office. That day in Scranton, though he moved fluidly and alertly, he struggled some with the cadence of his speech, which was mostly one-liners about Dr. Mehmet Oz. But the event opened up into a gentler moment when he asked, How many one of you in your own life have had a serious health challenge? Hands. Personally, any of you? Tons of hands went up silently from the synthetic grass. Quote, How many of your parents? Nearly all the remaining hands went up and stayed up, while he ticked off a few other close relations. Though this eventually segued into another joke about Mr. Oz, the silent, serious quality of this call-response was not how the campaign often played online and in the media, where Mr. Fetterman's condition became a weapon to be bashed over him. The politics of age and health can be brutal. Last week, Mr. Fetterman entered Walter Reed Medical Center to treat depression. Annie Carney reported that Mr. Fetterman's recovery has continued to be challenging as he adjusts to new accommodations and limitations. Though he initially faced criticism for not disclosing enough about his condition, over the last several months he has been public about the changes he has gone through and the accommodations he requires, and about depression, something millions of people face but politicians have rarely disclosed. Aging is different than depression or stroke recovery, but like those experiences, there is no shame in aging, and there's also no suggesting that everything's easy about it. The choice for Mr. Biden is only an elevated version of the one many people deal with. When will you know it's time to retire or step back, and when to keep going? All of us are aging, gaining and losing capacities in ways we may not even be aware of. There's no automatic test that will prove someone is, quote, too old, and even if there were, nobody would want to take it. You can drive yourself crazy with war games about the ways an election could go. What if Mr. Biden were to run and face a much younger candidate instead of Mr. Trump? What if he stepped aside in favor of a younger potential successor who then lost to Mr. Trump, invalidating the entire premise of Mr. Biden's 2020 presidential campaign? All that there is in the end is Mr. Biden's request to trust that he is right about himself. He's been right before, and may well be right again. But the reason this question lingers is the unstable ground of the answer. The source of what makes people worry about the president is also the source of his power and appeal. Our next editorial was written by Art Cullen and appeared first in the Storm Lake Times pilot. Farm Bill will be a rare accomplishment for a divided Congress. A new five-year farm bill 
could be one of the rare accomplishments this year from an otherwise deadlocked Congress. Talks are just beginning as the House Republicans and Senate Democrats organize their respective agricultural committees. They are starting amicably enough. It was not so last time around. When the Farm Bill was delayed a couple of years, mainly by House radicals trying to burn down the food stamp program. House Ag Committee Chair Glenn G.T. Thompson, a Republican from Pennsylvania, and Ranking Member David Scott, a Democrat from Georgia, both came from purple districts. Thompson is defending nutrition programs against Republican assaults and last week brushed off suggestions of new restrictions on SNAP benefits. He did criticize the Biden administration expansion of benefits. Thompson said his priority is to strengthen crop insurance, as half the corn growers in the state don't buy in. He's looking to sweeten that pot. Senate Ag Committee Chair Debbie Stabenow, a Democrat from Michigan, puts conservation at the center of the discussion and, of course, defending the nutrition program from cuts. Their common interests may result in one of the best farm bills in history for conservation and food security. The main rap on Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack is that he is too cozy with agribusiness, but he managed to assemble a client-smart ag coalition that includes titans like Cargill, ADM, and Tyson, alongside the Farmers Union and Practical Farmers of Iowa. Vilsack doled out several billion dollars last year in pilot projects designed to promote sustainable production and resiliency with many of those corporate players leading the projects. Critics call it greenwashing. Call it what you will. You could call it smart politics. The ag supply chain understands that change is underfoot. Farmers get that the climate is changing. If you're growing corn in western Kansas, you should be highly interested in how you can convert to grassland grazing. Vilsack bringing in the corporate players helps remind the House GOP that conservation programs might play a role in sweetening crop insurance. For example, a generous spiff for planting cover crops that actually could get something seeded. There will be money for carbon pipelines to protect the ethanol industry for manure digesters that interest the livestock industry and smart fertilizer programs to keep coke industries at bay. In return, Thompson makes kind remarks about nutrition programs. Of course, there will be a lot of rhetoric about welfare queens feeding at the USDA trough. There also will be whispers to keep a rein on it if you want to keep the climate spigot open to the big boys. Vilsack has claimed that the next farm bill could be transformative for rural America through conservation and renewable energy. Armed with $20 billion for climate and agriculture in the Inflation Reduction Act, Vilsack has been differential to Congress in marching forward. So far, the administration has taken baby steps in addressing food security and sustainable agriculture in a rapidly changing environment. You would have to squint hard to see the transformation. There is, unquestionably, an openness to conservation agriculture that was not there before. The coalition has been assembled. It's hard to fight the most powerful players in the world food markets. It is better politics at the moment to dance with them. As Thompson said, quote, The Farm Bill is always bipartisan 
and always bipartisan. At the end of the day, final votes are fairly bipartisan, and my goal is to keep it that way from the very beginning, unquote. Go along to get along. And now, back to local news from The Courier. Waverly Council authorizes issuance of $700,000 in bonds for the library project, despite pushback. This filed by Andy Malone, and the story begins with an artist's conceptual drawing of the proposed layout of the renovated and expanded Waverly Public Library. Dateline Waverly. Library enthusiasts have a reason to rejoice this week. They reportedly lobbied the city council and were successful in gaining buy-in from a majority of the members when it came time Monday to decide whether to issue $700,000 in general obligation bonds to help offset the cost for the previously estimated $2.4 million in renovations and expansion to the Waverly Public Library, located at 1500 West Bremer Avenue. A contentious discussion at the dais ended in the item passing 4-2 to two, with Council Members Matthew Snyder and Heather Bufour dissenting. Rodney Drenkow was absent. Some Council Members questioned the need to discuss the no-brainer and the importance of taking on the debt for the sake of a community hotspot that was built in 1998 and needs to expand to continue meeting the growing needs of Waverly. Quote, when I was a kid, I loved going to the library, but the library was just about books and, usually, I was the only person my age in the library, said Council Member Ann Rath. Quote, but you know, it's become a community center and there aren't that many places where anybody can walk in the door regardless of what color you are, your socioeconomic status, and even whether you can read and write, unquote. The opposition was not because of a lack of recognition in the importance of the library, though. It came out of a belief that council members had to make the difficult decisions to not prioritize the project. Administrator James Bronner said the municipality is in a very strong financial position, but Snyder emphasized that the county's economy is not helping any municipality's budget due to inflation and rising interest rates. Quote, we're looking at a financial storm, said Snyder. If we don't handle this properly, I think we could run into a very serious situation. Quote, I want to make sure that we're prepared so that in the 2025-26 budget, we do have a little bit more runway. After that runway's gone, then we have to start cutting staff or rapidly hiking taxes, he said. Beaufort questioned whether it was necessary to include the debt in the city's budget when other funding options exist and a lot of generous people already are supporting it. The library's foundation and a fundraising campaign had expected to generate another $1.4 million, or $700,000 each while the remaining $300,000 could come from grants. During one heated exchange, Beaufort asked whether all the important experiences described by others, including two young users of the library earlier in the meeting, go away if we don't do this expansion. Quote, if we're talking about, you know, what will happen, 
what will they lose if they don't have this expansion? Well, they won't lose anything as much as there will be lost opportunities for things that we can't do, Councilmember Brian Bergen replied. Earlier, Bergen explained why he believed the council members had a unique opportunity in front of them, because the city's commitment would help with obtaining grants and receiving private donations for the project. Quote, we're committing $700,000, but the impact is more than $700,000, Bergen said. Quote, I'd like to point out that we had a $700,000 bond for ball diamonds that passed unanimously. It seems to me that if we can have $700,000 bond for ball diamonds, we can put down $700,000 for the library, he added. And now, listeners, that brings us to the end of the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for this Friday, February 24th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember that you can hear a recording of today's reading from this newspaper and the others around the state that we record on our website, iowaradioreading.org. You can do that at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. 